to how are we making people feel? How how is each in, engagement with um, you know a customer? How are we making them feel when they leave? Are we making them feel better? Are we making them feel worse? Can we make somebody who's having a, a tough day and leaves a bad review that might not even necessarily be true or directed at us, um, can we convert that person? And, and we've converted a number of two stars or three stars into five stars just by letting these people know that they're heard and, and letting them know that we're going to improve and that their feedback is valuable. Welcome back, everyone. I meet some really interesting people on this podcast and some really interesting ideas on their concepts and where they came from. And this episode is no exception. I'm speaking with Pace, an entertainer and classically trained chef, and her partner, Chris, a former Wall Street trader. On their first date, Pace shared with Chris her idea for Daddy's Chicken Shack, which is now a Los Angeles-based growing chicken franchise. Interesting Southern style chicken meets Asian fusion. Now, this concept has a vibe. It's got really interesting marketing. And we're going to talk all about what it takes to start a new concept, grow that concept, franchise that concept. We're going to talk about pandemic pivots and all the challenges that they've gone through as you are going through. So don't miss this episode. It's a great one. You're tuned in to the Restaurant Rockstars Podcast. Powerful ideas to rock your restaurant. Here's your host, Roger Bodwin. Not answering your phone is one of the quickest ways for your restaurant to lose a potential customer. That's why your restaurant needs Pop Menu's newest product, Pop Menu Answering. With Pop Menu Answering, your restaurant will never miss a phone call. Pop Menu Answering is powered by artificial intelligence to answer the simple questions most people call in with, like, do you have outdoor seating? Or, what are your hours? This means the basic questions that keep your phone line tied up can now be handled without pulling a team member away from your in-person hospitality. Pop Menu Answering picks up your phone 24-7, 365 days a year, turning every phone call into an opportunity, all while reducing your labor costs and increasing customer satisfaction. Plus, Pop Menu's full collection of tools help optimize your restaurant's website and menu, streamlines your ordering experience, and assists in remarketing to enable you to build long-lasting relationships with your guests. Get help answering your restaurant's calls now with Pop Menu Answering. And for a limited time, my listeners can get $100 off their first month, plus lock in one unchanging monthly rate at popmenu.com slash rockstars. Go now to get $100 off your first month at popmenu.com slash rockstars. Welcome back, everyone. It is the Restaurant Rockstars podcast. And as you know, these are engaging topics that help restaurants build their brands, rock their profits, deliver amazing guest service experiences. And our goal here is to help you rediscover the passion of why you got in this business in the first place. If you're still standing after the pandemic, it's time to dig deep, get resourceful, and we can all learn from guests on the podcast. So thanks for being with us. With me today, I'm really excited. We have Pace Webb and Chris Georgialis, and they're the founders of Daddy's Chicken Shack. So uh, welcome to the show, guys. How are you today? Yay. Hi, Roger. Very good. Thanks for having us, Roger. <laughs> really excited to be here. Now, you guys have very interesting backgrounds. And as my audience knows, we always start with the backstory. So obviously, ladies first. So Pace, we're going to start with you. And I understand that you're a classically trained chef, but you're also an entertainer. So tell us about all of that. 
But before you do, where did your inspirations to cook come from? Did it start when you were younger? Did, were you in grandma's kitchen or cooking with your mother? Or did you develop that later in life? Oh, that came later in life. It's all part of the story. All right. Well, tell us the story. I won't ask any more questions. Just yeah, tell us, sure. Tell us so, the story. Yeah. So I'm a fourth generation entertainer, which just basically means I come from a long line of ladies who love to entertain. So growing up, my grandma was telling me stories of how her mom entertained and then my grandma watching her entertain. And, you know, my grandma um, was raised in a very well-to-do family, but then she eloped with a cowboy when she was 19. Okay. She wanted something a little bit different. So it gets really juicy from there. Excellent. So her and my grandfather raised their family on a ranch in Laredo, Texas, which is right on the border deep down South in, in Texas. So she really was a homemaker and made everything herself from scratch. And when birthday parties came around, she was making these elaborate scenes and sets and just getting really creative because she was just a, a, a naturally creative person at heart. And so my mom becomes this theater actress, you know, uh, developing this grand imagination on this farm. And we always had the opening night parties at our house, right? So there's this evolution of, of long line of ladies who love to entertain. And so I see my mom doing it day in, day out. And she has this amazing ability to transform any space into something magical where people want to be. And food was never really a main part of it. They weren't really into cooking, but it was more entertaining and putting a spread together, I guess, if you will. It was always, you know, we lived in Houston, Texas. So it was a lot of Mexican food and beers and, you know, Barry White or Samba on the, on the radio and creating a really lovely atmosphere. And so it clicked for me when I was about 14 years old that I wanted to be on the other side of the, the curation of the party. Cause you go to like, you know, your friend's house, you go, they got all the bright lights on. They're serving little weenies in a can, which are tasty, but come on, we can do a little bit better than that. And no music on, you feel like you're in an interrogation room, not having a good time. So really there is an art to entertaining. And so I didn't know that you could make a career out of it. And when I was in high school, I had cancer, a very rare form of colon cancer at a young age. And that sort of led me on this discovery with food, sort of um, really curious. And I went, you know, lived in Italy and Australia, um, sort of on my own quest for what food and life means. So I had a very young version of eat, pray, love <laughs> in my I you love know, it. 80s and 20s. Came back to Los Angeles, settled here, went to classic French culinary school and working three jobs, trying to figure out which direction I wanted to take in the culinary field and just started catering parties. And um, that's sort of what I fell into was my own catering business and um, was asked to do a party with, you know, tacos and sliders one night. And, um, you know, I was doing mostly regional Italian food by way of California. So tacos and sliders was not really something on our menu, but something I could certainly make up and, and do beautifully. And I've had the uh, fortune of traveling quite a bit and really enjoyed my time in the flavors in Southeast Asia. And so, you know, I said, sure, this, you know, celebrity party, I don't care who you are though. You know, I, I want to make amazing food. You're a paying customer, you know, that's all that matters to me. And so, um, I just made up the sandwich on the fly with this, you know, Thai style slaw dressing and a sriracha mayo that was sriracha, you know, was really having its heyday about seven or eight years ago, starting to come on the scene, a brioche bun and buttermilk fried chicken. Like what could be wrong? I didn't even try it before I went to this party. I was like, no big deal. Let me just whip this thing up. 
And the first guest to walk in was Mandy Moore and Ryan Adams. And I was like, oh man, this better be good. <laughs> and so right. people were freaking out over the fried chicken sandwich. And so it just sort of took on a life of its own from there. Um, and then when my husband had a bite of it, he was like, okay, we got to do something with this. So that's sort of my background and how I got to the sandwich. And I'll let, maybe I'll let him tell you how he got to the sandwich. (laughs) So Chris has a Wall Street background. So you're the business side of things, I'm sure. But tell us about your story and how does that combine with uh, Pace's story? Actually, I'll correct you there uh, right off the bat. Please do. Actually, yeah, she's the CEO of the company. So there's a chef that uh, loves spreadsheets. No way. Um, I know there's Whoa. some out there. Yeah. So okay. she, she loves it. And He's I'm, a first I'm for the podcast. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. So yeah, um, my, yeah my background is uh, a little less sexy. Um, we share the same values growing up. So uh, I was born and raised in a small town in New York. Uh, mom was a special needs teacher, uh, dad, coach and teacher, uh, siblings, all athletes growing up. We all ended up playing, you know, division one collegiate athletics. I didn't really know what I wanted to do when I graduated and all that kind of stopped. And, and uh, naturally being in New York, wanting to live in a big city, I ended up you know, going to Wall Street and I worked for a company called Deutsche Bank. So became eventually became a, a position, institutional position trader for Deutsche Bank and uh, you know, in the hospitality sector. So that was kind of my first foray. Those are very formative years for me to kind of see this kind of post.com bubble bursting you know, economy where you know things were changing and it was mostly happening in retail at the time so we were seeing you know uh, borders and barnes noble go to amazon and we were seeing uh you know the big one for me uh was netflix uh coming around and, and blockbuster going away these companies yes, iconic yes, brands that i thought right. were never going to go away were all of a sudden they didn't exist almost overnight toys r us right um so we were seeing all this kind of stuff and i, I started really paying attention to the technology uh, didn't think a whole lot about the restaurant industry, but I was entertaining a lot of customers down at the old Danny Meyer restaurants, um, you know, below 14th Street, which is not where you know expense accounts really went back then. And and I stumbled upon Shake Shack, so that's kind of where I was kind of like, I like this concept. Yes, um, you know, and eventually I ended up making my way out west to California, uh, and I met a chef. You know, and this is where the love story begins. You know, I <laughs> nice. met a chef and nice. took a bite of this sandwich and I never really thought I wanted to be in the industry, but I kind of looked back in history and said, you know, the, the restaurant industry is is almost 20 years behind retail. This is a crystal ball. This has kind of already happened. It's going to happen eventually. And uh, three years ago in you know, 2017, we really started putting together a plan. And 2018, we launched our first daddies. You know, that's really interesting because um, survival of the fittest comes up. And you talked about all those um, situations where companies didn't evolve and, you know, they got their lunch eaten for them by other players that were nimbler, quicker, had a better eye on what was around the next corner. Um, I have a friend that made a small fortune in Netflix stock, so we certainly get that. But there's a lesson here for our audience because it's it's so important to keep your restaurant ahead of the curve and to stay relevant. And obviously, technology is what makes our guests experience more convenient, more safe, and just to please the guest. And there's still a lot of old school restaurant operators out there that have not embraced all the available technology now. So it's so important as we move forward to just know, you know, We've all been forced to pivot. Like up until about a month ago, I owned my sixth restaurant, which thankfully I sold last month. But, you know, we had to pivot this place five or six times. And, 
my audience knows what, what we're talking about here. We're talking about the labor crisis. We're talking about dining rooms being shut down and suddenly having to do curbside pickup and delivery and third-party delivery and all and online ordering. These were all important technologies, which I'm sure that you obviously employ at Daddy's. But um, you, you brought up a really interesting point, and I thought it was important to emphasize that. And you guys have a fascinating story. Okay, so let's talk about Daddy's. Where did the brainchild come up? We talked about where that chicken sandwich, like I was on the website, and that chicken sandwich looks like you can dive right into it through the screen. Like it's incredible. Okay. So we know where the recipes came from, but daddy's the name, the branding, the marketing, the concept, the idea. Tell us about how all that developed because there are operators out there that are, you know, starting new concepts every single day. And it's like, this is such an important foundational element of a strong, powerful restaurant building a brand. And you guys obviously have done that. And now you're franchising. So tell us about the concept, please. Um, I do believe that a lot of great things come organically. Uh, so <laughs> not of just course. thrown from the ground, but you know what I mean? Literally. Yeah. And oh, absolutely. Yep. Um, and so after that, that night that the sliders made their debut, um, I call my dad the next day, you know, I always like, okay, this is LA, right? You're not going to believe what happened last night, you know, and he loves to hear these stories. And I said, Hey, maybe because my sous chef and I looked at each other, we're like, maybe we have some of these fried chicken sandwiches, forget all this fine dining nonsense with the, it's just a completely different thing. And it was like, I became a chef so I could feed people in a social setting. I wasn't looking to show off my nouvelle cuisine and plating skills. I come from a different need to feed people, a different school, right? And I think that there's, you're either one or the other. You can certainly be both, but one is more of like a technical skill. And the other one is more of a, a love and a, and a desire to feed people uh, and and less about the, the technical parts of it or making like 37 courses, which there is so much beauty in that, uh, but it's just not where I came from. So I got a little bit lost and you're only able to feed the one to 5% with our fine dining catering food, which we're so grateful to have had success in that and be able to employ myself and others to, to live that dream out. Um, but after a while, like you just want to make a dish, you just want someone to buy it. You know what I mean? Instead of this whole bidding process for a $50,000 event. And it really, you know, is more, is less about the food and more about the event, et cetera, et cetera. You kind of go, I'm a little bit lost here. Right. So wouldn't it be nice to just be really, really good at this one thing, this fried chicken sandwich and, and take a, a really lean into that. And so we thought, gosh, you were joking around. We would never quit fine dining because we're, you know, crazy people, but we're like, wouldn't this be really great? Forget all this. And so we kind of giggled it off. And then the next day I was talking to my dad. I said, oh my gosh, you Mandy Moore and Ryan Adams, they walk in, they have this sandwich and it's like, people are just picking it off the, the cutting board. They're not even waiting for the tray pass. It was so crazy. I said, dad, this could be your retirement plan. You could wear a Hawaiian shirt on the Venice pier, fried chicken, flirt with the ladies. And I imagined the banana stand from arrested development where the, the Bluths are laundering money in the, the walls. Not that we're at all doing anything like that. Obviously no, we're not. on the tip top just for the record. Yeah, of course. <laughs> um, and Straight as an arrow you are. I know. Oh yes. Got it. Right. We're big time now. So none of that. Um, so I thought, uh, you know, I said, this, this is going to be great and we can call it daddy's. 
I just off the, off the cuff talking to okay. my dad and my dad love has a great it. belly laugh and he laughed and I was like, daddy's chicken shack. I was like, that has a good ring to it. So I talked to other, some, talked to some other colleagues, got a business plan together, but I was still working, you know, seven days a week on my catering business with lots of pleasure and joy. Mm-hmm. And I uh, just, it just sort of shelved it. Cause I thought, oh, I'm going to need, that's a whole other endeavor. I'm going to need the right partner for that. And I haven't done a brick and mortar on my own yet. So I don't really know what that's going to become. And then enter Chris and he's the one who's like, okay, this is your shake shack. You know, this is where we can really take this and your food can be more accessible. And the really cool thing about the menu at daddy's is it's about 20 menu items. And we don't intend to get much bigger than that. We might do LTOs from time to time, but I have what's called the jumping jack factor on a menu, right? Most restaurants you go to have to have at least 50, you know, 50 menu items breaking down by starters and salads and sides and entrees, et cetera. And you kind of have to hit the marks of a, a fish, a beef, a chicken, a da, 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 da. This is sort of if it, and you find that you have things on the menu that are like good. And then you have, you're like, oh my God, I got to have it. Well, I wanted everything on the menu at daddy's. If it doesn't meet the jumping jack factor of, oh my gosh, I got to have it. I don't want it. It doesn't make it on the menu. And it's so easy to make these flavors taste good when you've got fried chicken, you know, from the American South. That's, you know, I would say that's our style of food mixed with Southeast Asian and Japanese flavors. So that's sort of the pillars on which all of the recipes are made on. And so that was really as far, you know, my dad did the the logo and has helped with a lot of the branding. And then we hired, when we got our investment to expand and franchise, we hired Harrison, which is this fabulous uh, world-renowned architecture firm. And we just had a wonderful experience developing what our prototypical location could look, would look like. And um, that in turn really helped us with our branding and understanding more of who we are. And so my dad's the creative director for Daddies, and he came up with the idea that instead of a shack in the traditional sense of this place that you would see that's been around for 100 years, that's dilapidated, um, and there's such beautiful charm in that, but how do you scale that across many locations to be authentic? And that was something really important to us is we want it to be authentic. So I said, instead of that, we're not going to make it look old, but we're going to take pieces of a house. So windows mismatch shaped, maybe a door hanging on the ceiling in the dining room. Um, so we're going to take the elements and place them oddly. And then we're going to use a bold color palette. So maybe it looks like someone's house that's been remodeled in each decade, but they've kind of left the things there. Excellent. This is definitely a retro feel. Um, it's very unique. It stands out, but I also think it's not alienating. So it really, it was important to us to, he it was very important to him. He's very into the aesthetic. Chris is very into the aesthetics that it was visually relaxing because there's too much noise, you know, figuratively in our lives these days and certainly visually. So we're moving away from the hyper cluttered spaces and giving people just a little bit of a respite of like, you can relax now you're here. It's still like you can see in our, our backdrop here, a ray of sunshine is. is what we're selling. Oh yeah. But, it's very relaxing, and I'm sort of getting a Venice Beach vibe out of it. I lived in LA for three years, so I totally okay. get the Venice Beach thing. Was that where your first location was? No, actually in Pasadena, California, but really so Pasadena all over was the first one. LA okay. is gotcha. very sunny. Well, right. 
Yeah, I totally get that. That makes perfect sense. And sure. I mean, the vibe is definitely coming through just from your background and what you described, the eclectic, you know, the the doors on the ceiling and the funky mismatched windows and all that. That sounds great. Now you're a quick serve concept. So counter serve only. Do you have any drive-through locations or is that something in, you know, in the future that's part of the plan? Well, I'm going to, I don't, I'll rewind a little bit and, and it's kind of an interesting story how we found this location in Pasadena. <laughs> Um, it was found on Craigslist, right? So it, it yeah. we started yeah. off at a food market you may or may not be familiar with called Smorgasburg. And when when Pace had uh, you know, when I'd taken a bite of the sandwich and she, you know, told me about this concept, um, we kind of both knew that Smorgasburg was coming out from New York, and this market in New York in Williamsburg um, was getting twenty thousand people a weekend. Uh, so we figured. You know, we can't dive right into this. She still had her catering company. I was still working for a smaller shop, uh, commuting quite quite uh, a ways away uh, to West. In LA traffic, LA traffic, <laughs> oh five hundred miles no. a week, Wall Street oh, wow. hours on the West Coast. Yikes! Right, so we weren't ready to totally jump into this entirely, um, but we're like, what? Why don't we just give? I'll give you Sunday if you can give me Sunday, right? And and we set up like the founder. We set a tent up in our, our loft movie. in the arts district. Right. And we ran through the plays, you know, and, and we walked through. I've never worked in the restaurant industry, by the way. You know, so uh, it was eye opening to me, you know, and she's a systems person. So we had a three person system and we popped a tent up in a parking lot in downtown L.A. Uh, this was January, early January 2017, 2018. 2018 sorry. So um, that's where we got our start. And we just really wanted people to feel, you know, touch, taste the product. And uh, understand that we had something before we took the bigger leap. Um, within four months, this this market had gone from four thousand people to, at times, over ten thousand people, and I think a record was over sixteen, seventeen thousand people, maybe more. Um, but within four months, I just kind of started feeling around a little bit and came across something on Craigslist, and, and Pace had said, "Look, if you find something where we can move my catering company to, like a test kitchen, commissary kitchen." Awesome. Um, and, uh, you know, with a little counter off to the side. Yeah. Um, and this was kind of the birth of uh, ghost kitchens, right? They were starting to come about. It was kind of like, and we were thinking about, you know, I was thinking entirely about off-premises um, food consumption outside of the four walls of the restaurant. But I was also thinking that we're nobody knows us. So how are we going to really truly understand our customers? Um, we need access to our customers. So we decided not to go right into a ghost kitchen and, and create created kind of like a hybrid ghost kitchen, which is really a test kitchen, which is Pasadena. And uh, we opened that location November 1st of 2018. So it just kind of shows you how fast it all kind of happened, um, you totally. know, with, within the first year. And next thing you know, we're, we're in Pasadena and, and we're doing our thing. So are you right in the center, like somewhere on Colorado Boulevard or in that whole really walkable area? Or are you somewhere else? No, we, we are... Uh, in, in an off the beaten path. We are in old town. Okay. Um, yep. But again, you know, I think this is just honestly, because I'm completely green in the restaurant industry at the time. And I was thinking entirely in the future paradigm that we didn't need to be on main street, that we, we could be a couple blocks off and, you know, the, basically the dark side of the mall where nobody goes. Um, and then we decided to really jump on digital. So, you know, we, we created what is now coined as an omni-channel approach, multi-channel, 
um, back then. And we were like, well, if nobody's going to walk by here, there's no businesses. There's 600 restaurants around us. Yeah. Super um, competitive town. Super competitive town. Yep. Um, you know, dry. You can't see us from from the street. Uh, there's a giant red curb in front. We don't have bathrooms. We don't have seating, really. How are we going to do this? You know, and eventually we did get some some seating outside only. Mm -hmm. um, and it's a 750 square foot space. Like, how are we going to do this? Right. So uh, we just went all in on digital. And, and again, I was just like, well, this is how people are, are consuming things. And, uh, and I'm obsessed with consumer behavior. And I think that you always have to just be slightly ahead of it. You can't be too far ahead of it. And you definitely can't be behind it. You have to be slightly ahead of it and truly understand what your customer is looking for, what they want. And we put that, you know, we, we built a website that kind of flowed like Instagram, mobile, desktop. We put an online ordering button for first party channel on there, which I didn't even know it was called a first party channel back then. You know, we just created all this, these things, basically reverse engineering our, our customer, who we thought our customer was going to be at the time, because we didn't have any yet. Right. So, um, you know, and, and that really did its thing. And, and, and immediately, you know, that's where the eyes were. People were finding us and they were trying us. And then on top of that, you know, this hospitality aspect of it, you know, you have to elevate hospitality if you're challenged, you know, and we were really challenged. So we had to figure out, you know, with Pace's fine dining background, I mean, we treated everybody that walked in that restaurant like they were walking into a fine dining restaurant, you know, and walking them through the menu and just over delivering on hospitality and service and, and you know, really getting to know the community um, and, and going all out with that and just not compromising. And, and, you know, that comes to, you know, the people that you have in your kitchen, right? Your, your employees, they have to uh, deliver that as well. So, you know, the, the thing was because of all this technology we, we put in place, we were able to get, uh, we didn't require as many people and we were coming from a food market where we had a three person system. So we basically just transferred that over. That's fascinating. Now you have a Houston location that's in the works right now. It's yet to open. Correct. Tell me about, now that's a very tech driven operation, but I get the sense that it's sort of a hybrid model because it's all in on the, on the online piece, but then there's sort of another side to it that makes the two sort of balance each other out, but really interesting. Why don't you tell us about that? Sure. I mean, we basically just took all the insights from the last three years and we designed a restaurant from the ground up. And, and I think, you know, something that's an advantage to us is that we didn't have to, we didn't have all these plans in place. And all of a sudden the pandemic hit, you know, we had the tech in place when the pandemic hit, we were ready for it. And then we we're able to now take these insights and design a restaurant completely around it. So we've taken these channels and we've expanded them even further with the things that we did not have. Like we, we don't want to leave out the people that, you know, want to walk in and sit down in our restaurant. It's just going to be a little bit smaller of a space. You know, we're going to increase the size of our kitchen because we want to be able to facilitate. It's all, it all sounds good. And, and you know, it's, you, you can talk about all you want, but if you're not executing it, it's not going to work. Right. So, it, you know, we're, we're looking at running, you know, 10 to 12 different ordering channels and access points, you know, to access our, our food uh, and probably five or six different handoff points, you know, to allow for uh, a frictionless experience from all channels. So if a customer wants to order and there's a line at the counter and there's a kiosk right in front of you, that's just as easy. And everybody knows how to use these things nowadays. That ticket prints out in the same place. Um, the, the, the drive-through, this will have a drive-through. It is a standalone on a busy corner, uh, 40,000 cars a day on this corner in the Heights in Houston. 
And, uh, you know, it will have a drive through. So what we've decided to do is go uh, entirely with an online order ahead approach. You know, no speaker box, no headsets, no car hops out. You know, we're saying that the remote, you know, the, the cell phone is the remote control to life, that people are doing things. And now more than ever, it used to be 80% millennial, but now we're looking at, you know, my, my mom is ordering through Grubhub, right? And, and the same thing happened when face, with Facebook when it went ubiquitous. You knew when your grandma was on it, something was going to, you know, things were <laughs> happening, right? So, yeah. you know, that, that channel, you know, we're get, we want to get rid of that bottleneck. And, and traditionally, fast casual or assemble to order like a, you know, Chipotle or, or Subway um, traditionally could not have a drive-through. Uh, and we are fast casual, but we do have QSR systems. But I wouldn't say that, you know, it wouldn't create a bottleneck if you were going to order at a speaker box and it might take, you know, four or five or six minutes. If the, if the order's bigger, it could really jam things up. And now everybody's going to, you know, more lanes and more, uh, you know, dual lanes and all, all this stuff. This is more real estate and more overhead and, and real estate's not going down anytime soon, you know? So, um, you know, it, it, it is where it is right now. And I think we've designed around those insights and, and we're, we're excited to get it going, uh, which would be late February, early March of next year. Everyone knows that Smithfield Culinary has a full line of great ready-to-cook to ready-to-eat products from Smithfield and Margarita. But what else is cooking? Tap into the latest culinary trends and get inspired with new recipes created by real working chefs from across the country. Bring more to the table with flavors and new menu ideas your guests will savor. Visit smithfieldculinary.com or follow at smithfieldculinary on social media. The whole third-party delivery thing is sort of evolving. When it first came out, restaurants needed the extra business that it brought in. And this was pre-pandemic, of course, but everybody complained about the high fees and a lot of restaurateurs know and some don't know that those companies obviously own the data and you don't have access to that data and you can't use that data as mar- for marketing purposes and all that. Now there's platforms that, utili- that utilize those third-party delivery companies or however you want to call them, but now they're passing costs onto the consumer and you know the operator can maintain more of a margin and yet keep the data and all that marketing stuff. Do you guys fall into that camp or where are you at with that and are you using all the major platforms? We absolutely do, but we don't shut any channel off. You know, uh, what, what the key is to drive your traffic to your highest margin channels, and that's what we'll do through you know different marketing strategies. But you know, you you want to have those DSPs on because it's you know they are you know they're they're spending millions of dollars to acquire customers. Um, they're aggregators, right? They're, oh yeah, for the, sure. The data stops there, but that's somebody trying your food, right? And and we believe that we have the ability especially with how we're aligned to convert those people to our first party high margin channels. And, you know, um, we have a lot of technology that we're running to do so. So, uh, and, and, you know, there's ways to market. I mean, I'll give you one example. Uh, We market to our drivers, you know, I mean, if we have a hundred drivers coming through or or more a day, you know, I can't tell you how many times when I was in the front there that, you know, drivers would come up and, you know, they have families, they're local, they're driving in the area. How many drivers actually came in to sit down and have a meal with their whole family, right? And that's that's not as much of a conversion, but we're still, you know, we're not, we're, 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 we're trying to communicate to whoever we can and, and move, those, move those people to those first party channels. So the DSP is a place to start. If somebody's on DoorDash and you're only on DoorDash um, and there's other people that only order on Uber Eats, 
you know, you're, you're not getting those people. So these, these companies kind of fluctuate in volume uh, as they market. Right. And you saw when there were the IPO is, you know, coming through with DoorDash that they were advertising everywhere. The volume went through the roof with DoorDash and then that lightens up. And then all of a sudden Postmates was doing it, you know, now that's Postmate Uber Eats. Right. So, um, but the key is then to figure out, you know, how to, um, and a lot of education happened during the pandemic for, uh, you know, customers to now understand that to support a restaurant, it's, it's better to go to the website. But if you're not set up with a website that has a, a frictionless experience, um, you know, to order through, then Absolutely. You, you just you don't have that channel. Right. So it's just the, the, the freedom of choice we've kind of created. Like you could just order whichever way you want, when you want, how you want, you know, and then you can pick up whichever way you're feeling that day based on. The, what scenario you're going through in your life. You could have back-to-back Zoom calls and you got a half hour to pick up. We want you to know you can come to daddy's and, and get through that drive-through line in, in less than a minute or maybe seconds, you know, the way we're structured um, because you've ordered ahead and the order's ready when you get there. And we might have some technology that lets, lets us know when you're going to arrive. And, you know, there's a lot of things that we're putting into place that we're playing with, but, you know, ultimately everything we're doing is we're, we're just customer obsessed and, we're focused on um, what the customer is going to be doing next, not only now, but for the next 30 years, you know, as we move into some very, very large, powerful uh, generations of young folks. Let's talk about staff because staff are the foundation of any successful business in any industry, of course. And obviously staffing challenges are at an all-time high right now. But how do you indoctrinate new people and sort of, um, you've obviously created a company culture there that's coming across really strong. But how do you communicate that so that the staff person communicates that vibe and the whole attitude and the whole, you know, daddy's chicken shack thing to the guests that make the guests think, wow, this is really special. You know, the the ambiance is cool and the food is fantastic. And I'm treated a certain way where I feel like I'm valued as a guest. I hate the word customer. I always use guests, but you know what I'm saying? So how do you onboard people and, and what kind of special training do you have? And then maintaining consistency in all of your units as you continue to grow is a huge challenge. So tell us about that. Yeah. So I think with any uh, unit, and I think everyone would agree with me, is um, making sure that your upper management, whoever's running the shop, totally fits your culture bill. And they have to obviously meet the other marks of being able to do the job properly. So they kind of become the culture patrol for the unit um, and then can instantly spot those who are not a culture fit before the hire or as you know, the person goes on employment and be like, yeah, those things are just not what we do here. It's not part of our expectation. We go our separate ways. Um, but we have um, our cashier position is not called a cashier. It's called a warm hugger. And I will tell you something before we were able yeah. to have it become that name, um, which I will get back to the name of that as well, is um, we had these kiosks. Chris ordered them as soon as the pandemic happened because people didn't want to come inside and, and be this close to another person to take the orders. So these kiosks were able, people were taking their own orders. All right. And so what it did then was eliminated the just the transactional nature of a cashier where all they're doing is, hi, how are you doing today? A little bit of hospitality, really like just trying to get you through their order. So the next person in line isn't bothered. Right. How sure. quickly you get someone's transaction. in? I mean, I know when I did it that way, I was like during lunch, I was like, hi, how are you doing? People were like, you are amazing at this. And I was like, but it takes away. It's just, so you know, it's very transactional. Right. 
and the hospitality can get lost there if you're simply trying to push people through. Um, so the kiosk has opened it up. It's basically replaced an entire person. So that person standing in the in front with the cashier, yes, they're managing the delivery orders and they're managing expo out and things like that, but they're really able to be freed up to not be just purely transactional anymore and focus more on the hospitality. And <clears throat> I think that's something really important, especially if you have such a thing as a kiosk, you need, I still want people like we're people, people, and you can gauge if some people don't want that deep interaction, they just want their damn sandwich to get out of there. Right. But um, a certain element of the personal touch will always be very important. Totally. Absolutely. totally. Yeah, these, are, these are, you know, tools that have been fashioned to aid, not, not necessarily to replace. I mean, obviously there's certain single use tasks that, you know, I'm not sure how much value people feel in those jobs anyway, if you're just kind of dumping ketchup all day long or pouring, you know, right. hot, you know, dry rub onto the chicken. Um, so, you know, it allows us uh, to empower, you know, our staff to be able to provide that elevated hospitality um, instead of just always feel feeling like you're bogged down with, you know, that throughput and that order flow that's coming through, um, you know, which is very important for us. So. The term warm hugger came yeah, from the you. fact that I feel like my food tastes like a warm hug feels at daddy's, you know, fried chicken is comfort food, right? It is. Yes. And we've got all those really fun other flavors that accompany the fried chicken. And so when you take a bite of it, that's how I could best describe it. And I'm a very like touchy feely person and I, I'm a big hugger. I like to hug people. And so I wanted that to come across. And so how do you do that without physically embracing people? And that's sort of our, our benchmark. What, what makes people feel warm and embraced to the degree that they want to be right in that moment. And that's always what we're pushing. So we do have special training materials that are specific to uh, reaching that goal of giving people a warm hug and you either have it or you don't, there's definitely ways to train deeper, but we've, we've had plenty of folks who are like, wow, this person just, just really should not be in the front of house. And so how do you maintain that with quality? We're really, really big on customer interaction. Uh, we have a rating system where they can send us. And this is where, you know, Chris's genius comes in handy because how do you digitize hospitality and try to elevate that? Right. That's really hard, but that is where we're headed. And you'll get reviews sometimes who will call people out by name who are great, or they'll call people out, maybe not by name, who are not so great. And you can start to see a bit of a pattern. And when you, your ratings really don't lie, there's every once in a while, you'll get someone who, you know, a one-star rating usually is not helpful to the business. It might be something that's too extreme. It's, it's, it's the uh, two to four stars that will really help you with constructive criticism. Um, so we really do pay attention to reviews and also just, you know, little cues here and there that you may get from secret shopping on how the interaction was. We, we like, when we track certain KPIs every week and we don't sit around to just toot our own horns, we know we're doing a great job, but we really look, are looking for opportunities for improvement all around. And so as long as you have that mindset of always wanting to improve and be better in every area, then that's sort of how we track and maintain as we scale. Yeah. I think any, any chance you get to interact with your customer, you know, that's, that's an opportunity. Um, even if it's negative, as hard as it is to hear sometimes that's where the gold lies. You know, when people are actually giving you that feedback, you shouldn't take it as, you know, something negative, but this person's reaching out, maybe trying to help you. 
you know, so we're kind of hacking these reviews a little bit to engage with our customers. So we're, you know, we're responding to all of them. We're listening he, to them. And, and he is, I'm I, not, I am I'm yeah. not allowed to respond because I do take everything personally yeah, we as just, a recovering chef. <laughs> I, I think we really just, break, yes, recovering chef. Yeah, I think we really gotcha. just kind of break it down, yeah. you know, to how are we making people feel? How, how is each in, engagement with, um, you know, a customer, how are we making them feel when they leave? Are we making them feel better? Are we making them feel worse? Can we make somebody who's having a, a tough day and leaves a bad review that might not even necessarily be true or directed at us? Um, can we convert that person? And, and we've converted a number of two stars or three stars into five stars just by letting these people know that they're heard and, and letting them know that we're going to improve and that their feedback is valuable. You He's know? amazing. So, I read some of his stuff and I'm like, you are a better, better, way better person than me. Yeah. Ultimately right? it it's, comes down. How, but that's you know, what you need. You need that someone yeah. on your team that represents. Yeah. Oh, for that, sure. Everyone does. Enlightened hospitality and deep emotional connection. And it's just brilliant. What yep. yeah. yeah. I mean, you have to, you have to let the person know that you're, you know, that you're hearing them and you need tact and you need professionalism and you need, you know, to turn a situation around if it was a negative situation and you need to turn them into your biggest fans, even though they may not have had the best experience. And that is a real skill for anyone of our audience. And some people, you know, like you, Chris, handle it yourselves. And some other people have, maybe there's a manager that's really good at that, or maybe there's an employee that's really good at that, but there's someone in every organization that has that special skill set to relate to the guest and figure out what went wrong and how do we fix it? And how do we put a positive spin and get that person to be a fan? And that's really what we're talking about. Sounds like you're doing a great job with that. Who's the mascot, the Shaq mascot I just saw. Oh yeah. <laughs> that's little Alan Jackson. Yeah, He goes by Jackson, but Alan Jackson, that was our first concert together. So Oh, excellent. Uh, awesome. We named our little doggy Alan Jackson. Last one was Willie Nelson. So just give Perfect. you a theme. Keep <laughs> common the theme, theme here. Fantastic. Let's talk a little bit about, you know, the labor shortage. Has it affected you? Is there something that you did or figured out or a best practice that you can share that, um, you know, has helped you through this whole thing? I mean, what have you done? Because everyone seems to be struggling with it right now. It doesn't seem to be going away anytime soon. And, you know, recruit versus hire. And obviously wages have increased and now bonuses and incentives. And you got to keep your good people happy. I mean, there's a thousand things we could talk about, but what are you guys doing about it? Yeah, I think, um, you know, for us, we were definitely affected by it, but th there's a lot of things that we put in place three years ago, not thinking, obviously not knowing a pandemic would happen or a labor shortage, Yeah, but just knowing that we wanted to do more with less, you know, and, and, and pay Excellent. people more and pay people a, a higher wage. And in order to pay people a higher wage, you know, three years ago, we had to do more with less. So we kind of started that way. Um, when the when the shortage hit, I mean, for us, that was actually harder than the pandemic because we were so digitized for the pandemic. We were up, you know, two to three times almost overnight. Um, but and then all of a sudden, this labor shortage hit as restaurants were opening back up. And uh, I think our biggest challenge that we had, you know, we had just incredibly strong people that had been just well trained and had been working with a lot of volume through the pandemic. And, and rightfully so they were getting job offers to become sous chefs at, you know, fine dining restaurants. And, and for us, we're like, well, this is what we're all about. We're, we're, we're not going to hold these people back. We want like, this was part of that stepping stone. We, we want to, um, 
you know, be a stepping stone for, for the rest of people's lives, not just daddy's chicken shack. So we were just kind of like, okay, yeah, you know, we support you go, let us know if you need anything else. And, and in doing that, we had to mess around with some things and we had to, you know, uh, move hours around and move shifts around. And, and there were some people that had to step up and, and really, you know, got us through some difficult times, but everybody rallied together and we did get through it. And I think because we were so optimized just across the board, we had this smaller menu, you know, less skews. Um, we had less people doing, you know, more, uh, that were very trained. We had the technology in place. Um, you know, so it was, it was a big bump in the road, but I think we recovered faster than most. Excellent. Let's go back to systems, but what I'm really interested in is franchising as a concept, because there are a lot of operators out there. There's a lot of people in our audience that may have something really, really special. And they're thinking, okay, I want to spread this thing across you know, the country, but it seems like it's a very daunting process. And the very first thing needs to be your systems that need to be dialed. And you know, Chris, you mentioned that Pace is a systems person and that she's got her system. So you know, your very first location had to be like completely, like you said, scalable, easy to duplicate, like all the systems had to be in place. That must have taken a tremendous amount of time to do all that. And you haven't been in business a tremendous amount of time. So let's talk about that process. And then let's talk about the legal aspects of things. Is it really, really um, challenging to, once you got your systems, to get all the legal documents and then all the you know, there's so many details in running one restaurant. I call this the business of a thousand details with one place. And now you want to do two, three, 500 places. Mm-hmm. Take us through the entire process. Like, how did it begin for you? And what were the challenges? And what was easy? And how long did it take? And, you know, was it yeah. very expensive? And did you hire a hospitality specific attorney? I mean, there's so yeah, much obviously. here. Yeah, sure. So, um, a couple things I, wanted when, when daddy's was born, I wanted it to be the opposite of my catering business taste of pace. Right. So that had infinite menu items, custom, everything you possibly could imagine. This was going to be like in and out in terms of its, its menu. It was going to be very, very small and not too many modifications. Just this is, this is it pretty much right here. Um, and I knew that, uh, and with my catering business, it's just, I had to be hands in every pie in every aspect of the business. And I said, I can't, I can't be two people. I can't also do that with this business, but this business daddy's is meant to be scalable to where I don't have to work day in day out reinventing the wheel because it's a, it's the same menu every single day. Right. Okay. You have plenty of other variables. Um, and so when I, when we started to grow, uh, in early 2020, this is almost a year ago. Uh, that's when I started to uh, step away from the operation more and more. I'd put in my systems that worked, and then we, you know, hired another GM and they put in better systems and improved upon things. Um, and so basically, I just saw every week I would remove myself a little bit more, see what was broken, remove myself a little more, see what was broken, and based on what I would find what was broken or missing would create a system for it, right? There has to be an out point on the training or the learning or the system. Okay. And that's where I knew that was the only way we were going to grow. And I didn't really know a lot about franchising and I didn't really know how to grow specifically, but I knew we were going to, and that's what we were preparing to do. And I wanted to be ready 
for when we had that in mind, because that is, has always been the plan to grow. And so we, uh, it's something I say, as soon as you know that you want to have more than one location, just start that tedious process. And your manual is probably going to be 350 pages long of how to operate the restaurant, which what each key position does their roles and functions. You would want to make it to where if you died tomorrow, you could, they'd have a book Mm -hmm. and they would know how to do it beautifully and perfectly. And that takes time to constantly go back and and make it tweak it that way. Of course. Um, When we uh, did secure our investment for franchising, it was sort of a, a a thing like you, since we don't, they, the group that um, our investor is Dave Leniger, the founder of Remax. So he's a franchise King. He's not a food service King, but he's a franchise King. They've got 8,000 locations internationally. He's been doing this for 50 years. So he said, that's what we'll bring to the table for you. We'll bring the capital and we'll bring the know-how on franchising. And he has a consulting firm that he's worked with on with Remax that's also helped with ExxonMobil, IKEA, and some other food service businesses. Perfect. And they're a consulting business. Yeah. They're named, they're called Franchise Well. They're really, really great. And they help with the process that you're talking about. That's very daunting that if you don't know, most restaurant people aren't going to intuitively know about franchising and it is a very overwhelming process and you do need a consultant like that. And it's about a six month journey from getting all of your system. That's why we had to do, I am so glad I did all this work, but even before I knew about the process, because you're going to have to do it in this process to be ready to sell your business and your business systems. At the end of it, you have what's called a franchise disclosure document. And so there are legal fees and all that wrapped into it. And it's not actually as expensive as you would think that it is. Um, And so, yeah, I would say from start to finish six months, if you really are just almost on it full time, you know? Well, that's a key right there. Um, The key to systemizing a business is working on your business now. So you decide how or if or when you work in it in the future. You don't work in it, you work on it. And then you, I hate the word delegate because anybody, any manager can tell somebody what to do, but empowering your people so that they literally run the places. If you owned it is a system unto itself. And it sounds to me like you've got that dialed and that's a foundational system right there. But yeah, yeah, work on your business now because you don't know what the future holds. You know, you don't want to work your restaurant 24 seven. You want to grow it. You want, you might want to go out and do another business. You might want to spend more time with your family. You might want to do God knows what, but that's the whole key right there. Work on your business now. So I'm really glad you pointed that out. So six months is probably optimistic for most people, but first it starts with having those systems in place. And then you made it clear that, you know, having a a consultant that really specializes in this is key. And it's amazing that you found these really powerful, influential people that loved your concept and really believed in it, that were able to share the vision and help you grow the business. That's amazing. That's remarkable. Fantastic story there. What about consistency? How do you maintain consistency in different stores as you continue to grow? You know, I, I I've said this before, but I like watching that show Undercover Boss. I know you've probably oh, seen it, oh, right? You too. Great show, yeah. So you know, the, these people travel the country and they just walk in and they infiltrate the business as if they're just some you know person working there, and half the time they act incompetent, and it's amazing what they do. But I mean, it's 
Do you do surprise visits or do you let other operators know you're coming in, but we're going to check it out? It's like, how do, what's your strategy there? We'll, we'll place orders under different names and secret uh-huh. shop for Excellent. sure. At least secret shop. Yep. Yeah. And there's like a couple of uh, items that are benchmark items to see how mm-hmm. the rest of the food is probably going to taste after that. Um, <clears throat> so I think the way that we have it right now, we make everything from scratch because we have one unit in California and we're building a unit in Houston. Right. So we don't have more than that. Mm-hmm. So when we have enough units, there are a few things that we will start to have a third party make and send to each unit, like a commissary yes. sort of setup. So for example, what you brine the chicken in has a certain amount of salt in it super important to the recipe, right? So that would be something that you'd want to have sent out by a third party so that you don't have everyone at the unit trying to measure the right amount of salt to put in something. Right. Uh, right. There are other efficiencies like that, that as we scale, we'll be able to get so that you're taking a lot of the making something from scratch aspect out of it. Um, But for now, we can tell with ratings again, like I said, ratings are very transparent on how things are tasting. Um, We do require tastes to be made in line checks. We have, you know, you can hold the chicken of this. There's four different sizes of chicken. You can hold the larger sizes for 20 minutes in the holding cabinet before they're expired because they're not just not as juicy. Uh, The smaller sizes are 10 minutes and there's timers for that. So there are all these stops and steps along the way and processes, but you're right. As you grow, they can just simply fall through the cracks because of human error. So we're really trying to eliminate that part, those parts as much as possible as we grow. That is perfect. That's what you're going to absolutely have to do. Keep it simple because it's got to be duplicatable in an easy fashion. And those nuances like the salt, I mean, it's got to be pre-done so that because yeah, the inconsistency challenge there is just always going to be present. I see sometimes I'm like, Hey, the scale, uh, is out of batteries, you know, and most of my recipes for spices are through weight because that's the more mm-hmm. accurate way to do it. Right. Oh yeah. The, we haven't been able to get the scale working, the batteries. Well, did you tell so-and-so you're like, these things are happening under our own nose. Imagine the other things that happen when it's not under your own nose. So again, the more you can eliminate those things and just set people up for success, because once their ratings at their unit are great, you know, all the employees benefit from that. We won't dictate to our franchisees how they'll run their employees, but we have three KPIs that we, uh, that our whole team can have rewards on every single week. And one of those is ratings and that's service and food, Right. And that's across, you know, every channel that's out there. I mean, we're digging into the dashboard to see ratings in Uber Eats and DoorDash and Grubhub and reading everything and going through everything. And I know you can't do that all the time as you scale, but when you have technology in place that can aggregate that information for you, that's a source of truth. I mean, you're really seeing, you know, we're getting messages. If the ticket times are slow, we can tell you know, when that came in, what time of day, this is all coming in. And if you're getting four or five of those, you know that your ticket times are slow at that time that you got to, there's a training moment there and we got to improve on that. Right. So we're using a lot of data in a way, you know, and, and collecting this in different day parts um, and understanding what, you know, order flow, what's going out the door in order to, uh, you know, make the kitchen efficient and execute what we need to execute in order to provide that experience. Cause again, like I said, if, if you don't have those core operations in place to execute it, it's great to talk about all this great stuff that you have. But if you're not executing, your your customers are going to let you know. For sure. 
You mentioned earlier that movie, The Founder, and I find it really sort of in really kind of funny in a way that um, there was one particular franchisee that brought chicken into the hamburger concept, you know, and you guys are obviously a chicken place. And most most franchise companies, um, the formula is, you know, non-negotiable. Nothing can be deviated from. This is exactly how we do things. And the franchise agreement is full of all those. It must be done this way, this way, this way. Will there be any leeway at all in in how someone operates a store? Because one of the challenges of having a franchise is people sometimes think they have a better way of doing things, even though they may not have a better way of doing things. They think, I've oh, I got a better idea for a menu item. Will there be any flexibility with you in terms of Will you review something? Will you give someone, you know, your ear and say, well, let me think about that. And then you'll get back to, or is it, nope, this is the formula. It'll never be different than what it is now. That's a broad topic. I think you never say never, but there's such a grave importance uh, as a new brand to really not deviate very much in the formative years so that you don't get diluted as a brand. So people know exactly who you are and exactly who you ain't. (laughs) And so- Um, as time goes on, I think that there is a little more room for, um, experimentation on menu items for sure. Um, in terms of how people operate the business, we will learn the people that we'll be doing business with will be more experienced operators than us, more experienced franchisees than us. And that's sort of the beauty of the relationship is that, there are these two different skill sets between the franchisor and the franchisee. And a lot of the amazing things that you see in franchise companies comes from the franchisees. They're very powerful. I think things like the, um, the Whopper uh, was from franchisees. Big Mac and $5 foot long. I mean, the conversation will always be on the table. We're constantly learning from each other. And this is a two-way relationship for sure. Um, I think, you know, they're, you know, franchisees and, and these operators are, are embedded in their communities. They know their market. They know their communities. We'd be, you know, it'd be stupid for us not to, to listen to that and to really pay attention to it. And, and, uh, you know, and, and, you know, if it's a good enough concept, yeah, maybe it can, or good enough uh, item, maybe it can make it to the menu, but it will go through a pretty extensive process to yeah. make sure that we're not, you know, damaging the brand at all. Well, I commend you both because you've certainly got something really solid. You got a great concept. It's really exciting and it just sounds like it's taken off and there's so much future ahead of you. So I thank you so much for being guests on the podcast. Thank you Thanks, so much. Thanks, Roger. Have yeah. a beautiful day. Thanks, you Roger. as well. Stay well, everyone. And that was the Restaurant Rockstars podcast. Thanks for tuning in and we'll see you in the next episode. We really appreciate our audience. Thank you so much for listening. And thanks for the positive reviews you've been sending our way. Glad to know that our podcast is helping you run a stronger, more efficient, more profitable restaurant. Thanks to our sponsors of this week's podcast, Smithfield Culinary, Pop Menu, and the Restaurant Rockstars Academy. And of course, thank you to our guests, Chris and Pace. Really interesting concept with Daddy's Chicken Shack. Don't forget to leave us a question. We love talking shop with operators. Again, we'll see you in the next episode. Stay tuned. People go to restaurants for lots of reasons. What the customer doesn't know is the thousands of details it takes to run a great restaurant. This is a high-risk, high-fail business. It's a treacherous road, and smart operators need a professional guide. I'm Roger. I've started many highly successful, high-profit restaurants. I'm passionate about helping other owners and managers not just succeed, but knock it out of the park. 
You don't just want to run a restaurant, you want to dominate your competition and create a lasting legacy. Join the Academy and I'll show you how it's done. Thanks for listening to the Restaurant Rockstars podcast. For lots of great resources, head over to restaurantrockstars.com. See you next time.